Hi guys, good morning everyone. Uh, first of all, thanks thanks for allowing me to come and speak uh, to you guys today. It's really it's really a pleasure to be here. Uh, I've been in this game for 20 years as a housing attorney and um, solo for a long time uh, representing landlords. And in the last year, my office uh, joined forces with another with another firm, Roderick Bancroft and Sicardi, and we're now uh, we merged together. We're practicing together, and we're a unique housing firm in that we do all aspects of housing law. We represent both the landlord side and the tenant side. I personally am a landlord specialist, and uh, my partner uh, Chris Sicardi, who's a speaker today, does both landlord and tenant. And we have another partner who focuses solely on the tenant side. Uh, so it gives us a, quite a unique perspective in that uh, we see both sides and we can bounce ideas and strategies and things like that off each other. Um, but I started right where you are doing lawyer for the day. 20 years ago, I walked into housing court and walked up to the lawyer for the day table and asked if I could watch and sat there and watched and watched trials and learned the business uh, representing landlords for a while, doing a general practice. And now that's all I do. So focusing uh, exclusively on landlords. So when it comes to landlords and lawyer for the day, that's, I'm gonna walk you through that aspect of it. And quite frankly, the majority of lawyer for the day calls, I, I think are probably on the tenant side, but on the landlord side, most commonly you're gonna get landlords who come in or call who are looking for compliance questions, meaning they're about to start an eviction, they wanna do a notice to quit, they wanna do a summary process summons, and they're gonna ask you about how to fill those things out. Or they're gonna be there on their actual trial day. Uh, and on both, whether they're looking for help in walking through this process from beginning to end, or whether they're on for their trial day, your analysis for them is gonna be the same. And you wanna really just look to their prima facie case and go through it step-by-step step to make sure, because it's, as most of you know, summary process is really detail-oriented and every step, if one step is done wrong, it can dismiss your whole case for it. So you wanna walk through that to be able to better advise them. So that's what we're gonna do. We're gonna start with the owner and lessor's prima facie case. So if we could uh, go ahead and go to the next slide. So the prima facie case for a landlord, it's actually pretty simple. Uh, you first have to just show that you're the owner or the lesser and that you terminated a tenancy. Obviously if there's cause for the reason for the eviction, which is not always mandatory, but if there's cause, you need to prove that as well. But that's it, that's simply the landlord's case. A lot of landlords get kind of drawn out as to what they need to prove, what they don't need to prove. It's very simple. They own the property, they're a landlord, and they, they have a tenant and they terminated the tenancy. Uh, you can't commence an eviction case until a tenancy has been terminated. So let's go to the next slide and let's start with the first piece. Who is the person you're talking to? Who's the plaintiff on this case? The days of having an agent be there on their behalf are over. There's a very important decision. I think it's the only case law I've cited in this entire packet, and it's the Hatcher decision. And it's pretty recent. It's within the last two years. If you haven't read it yet, read it. It's really important. I can guarantee you every tenant attorney up at the housing court has read it. And it stands simply for the proposition that the only person who can bring an eviction is either the landlord, or I'm sorry, either the owner of the property or the lesser of the property. The lesser would be the person named in the lease, the person named on the written tenancy agreement. Those are the only two parties that can be named as a plaintiff on this. And it's really important because you'll get dismissed on this. It's a jurisdictional question. I mean, it can't be just fixed by an amendment or something like that. You'll get bumped up. The Hatchet case is, is a pretty famous case um, because it was a property manager who had done this. I think in the, in the case, he, he testified that he'd done it over 90 times. And quite frankly, it was very common where you have an owner of a property 
who's also the, the lesser on the lease, but you have a separate property manager, and then the property manager is the one who files the eviction. And this property manager had done it numerous times, and someone finally called him out on it and said, wait a minute, you're neither here, and you're signing this document, so it's technically an unauthorized practice of law. Um, so they put a stop to it, but it's nice now that it's nice and clean. I personally always put the owner, no matter what, on my summonses, but it can be if the owner is an LLC or a trust, and the lease is in the name of a property manager, then it could be the property manager or it could be the owner. So it's really important to look at, look at first to see who you're speaking to. The other thing is a lot of times landlords come in, especially the type of landlords you're gonna deal with, which is the mom and pop type landlord. Most of the large property managers and things like that have attorneys. But at the lawyer for the day table, you're gonna be dealing with what I call the mom and pop landlords. And they quite frankly will say, oh, I own the property. They don't realize, they, they're not thinking that the property's in a trust or in an LLC. And that's important because you want to be able to designate, you know, does, do they have the authority under the LLC or under the trust? Um, so once you've established who you're talking to, and now you've got the plaintiff, the most important thing is to ask what type of tenancy is it? What, what are we dealing with? Because what type of tenancy is then going to help you determine whether the notice to quit is correct and what the next, uh, whether you have a basis for an eviction. So the various types of tenancies, you've got leases, tenancy will, Section 8 lease, a lease holdover, and finally a post foreclosure. All those are important because the notice to quit for each of those is very different. Well, can be very different, some of the same. That's what we're gonna to touch on next. But once you've determined who the plaintiff is, and now the type of tenancy, you wanna get into the notice to quit. The first thing you're gonna to wanna to look at. If we go to the next slide. So, on notices to quit, applicable to all notices to quit, I don't care what type of notice to quit you give, it must be clear and unequivocal. There's no magic language, there's no mandatory language with a slight exception for, for a Section 8 notice to quit. There's no language that has to be there. It doesn't have to say it in certain terms, it just has to be clear and unequivocal. It must give a reason, unless it's, again, one exception, a 30-day no-fault. Uh, it must accurately identify the landlord and the tenants and, and accurately identify the property. That may seem like common sense, but it's really important to be to be clear and concise, for example, if you have three tenants and the notice to quit is simply to only one tenant, that's likely grounds for a dismissal. You wanna make sure you name all the parties and identify who the landlord is. Um, a lot of the notices to quit you find online and things like that have, you know, henceforth you'll be notified to quit and deliver up this property that you now hold. I don't like it to be so, I don't like legalese in any documents, but I like it to be clean and concise. My, my notice to quit is very simple. Listen, your tenancy is terminated as of, as of this date. Please vacate on or before that date. Clean, simple, but whatever you prefer, as long as it's clear and unequivocal, that is the most important. And the, the, the last little sub point there is uh, a 30-day notice to quit, a no-fault notice to quit can, can also offer a new tenancy. It's actually the proper way to raise someone's rent. So when you have a landlord who is looking to raise the rent, the appropriate way to do that would be to say, hey, I'm terminating your existing tenancy, so here's a notice to quit. And if you wish to stay on after that date, here's the offer of a new tenancy at a new rent. If we can go to the next slide, please. So on the notices to quit, the first one, the most common one is a non-payment rent. That's always a 14-day notice. I don't care what type of tenancy it is. Lease, Section 8, if you have rent and you're collecting rent and you want to terminate the tenancy for non-payment, it's always a 14-day notice to quit. There are cure periods that you have to pay attention to 
whether it's a tenancy at will or whether it's a lease. Um, when it comes to the 14-day notice, it's important, I think, that you never want to pick a day 14 days. You want to say, and again, this is more, you know, obviously when you have a landlord who's on for trial that day, you want to look to see that it's a 14-day notice. But when you have a landlord who you're simply advising on how to do a notice to quit, you never want to say, well, today's the 14th. You wouldn't want to say, give a notice to quit today, saying your tenancy is going to terminate on the 28th. While that may end up being okay if you do actually serve them today, I, I prefer, and I think most standard form notices to quit, say something along the lines of, you know, your tenancy will terminate 14 days after your receipt of this notice. That way, when you have the constable or whoever you have serve the notice, you then determine the date based on when they got it, because you're not exactly sure whether you serve them today or maybe they're not around today, you serve them tomorrow. So that way you can determine when the 14 days is up. Um, there is cure language for both tenancies at will and leases. The tenant at will cure language is 10 days and it's statutory that you have to put that in the notice to quit. If you don't put it, it's not fatal. It just gives them a little longer time to pay. So a lot of times you'll be dealing with, again, mom and pop landlords. You'll see a notice to quit that's a 14-day notice. It's supposed to have language in there that says you can cure or pay all the rent that's due within 10 days. If they didn't do that, it's fine. It's not defective. It just means that the tenant then has until the answer day at court to be able to pay that. Um, and it's most times when obviously you're standing in court that day, that answer day have already have passed. So you still be able to speak to the landlord specifically regarding that. Um, next page, the cure period for a lease. It's my opinion, one of the only drawbacks is to, to a lease. I think you always want to have a lease when you're a landlord. Uh, but the one annoying piece is the statutory cure language of a lease. Leases can always be cured. I forgot to mention on the tenancy will, tenancy will can only be cured once every 12 months. So meaning if you give a notice to quit to a tenant at will for a 14-day non-payment and then they cure it, they pay it. If then the next month they pay again, the 10-day cure language only is for once within one year, once within the past 12 months. So if they are habitual late payers or things like that, you can still terminate a tenant at will. On the other hand, a lease, the cure language is statutory in 186.11. And no matter what, on a lease, if they're behind on the lease, they can always cure by paying to the landlord or the attorney all rent due with interest and costs of suit by the answer date. Something that comes up quite a bit is the landlords, when they see costs of suit, they want to say, okay, well, they got to pay my legal fees. They got to pay this cost. That's not going to fly. When they say costs of suit, it's specific to only the costs that were mandatory. It's not mandatory that you have an attorney. It's not mandatory that you use a constable to serve a notice to quit. So you're going to get simply the costs that are mandatory, which are filing fee at the court and the cost to serve the summons. Other costs, out-of-pocket costs, I have landlords who ask for all different kinds of costs and that's not going to fly. It's simply the rent and the interest and that's all. And that's due by the answer date. Um, as a note here, I see no cure rights in a cause-based eviction. I, I assume that's obvious. Um, when you're dealing with a cause eviction, whether it's fault or something like that, there's, there's no opportunity to cure that. Uh, next slide, please. So after we get past the 14-day notice to quit, all other grounds when you're trying to terminate a tenancy, you want to start first by looking at the lease. So many landlords don't read their own lease. It's so important. Look simply to the lease. Most leases have a seven-day provision for fault, 
Again, non-payment is always 14 day. However, a lot of leases leave out that seven day notice period. And if there's no notice in there and you're actually alleging fault, you're alleging a breach of the lease, whether it's a violation of a rule, smoking, unauthorized occupants, whatever it is, causing disturbances, unless if there's no notice provision in the lease, then it's a 30 day notice. However, look to the lease, look to the rider, read that. A lot of landlords don't even read their own lease to know what the term, what the time frame to terminate a tenancy. If it's a tenancy will, it's always a 30 day. Now, what's unique about the tenancy at will is it's 30 days or a full rental period, whichever is longer. I'm sure you've all heard that term. Sometimes it gets a little tricky. So right now, most leases are month to month. You wanna be very careful for a really rare circumstance where it was a lease term other than month to month, but I don't think you'll ever see that. Most commonly, you've got a rental period of month to month. So today's, I think what, October 14th, if we were giving a 30 day notice to quit today, the termination date would be December 1st. It's important, again, look to the rental day. You wanna be careful for things like if the rent is paid by the 15th to the 15th or some other date, which again would be pretty rare, but sometimes if you see it, so it has to be a rental day. Um, to say the end of the tenancy is okay. So I mean, the end of the rental period. So. What I like to do is, today's October 14th, if I was terminating a tenancy will right now, I would give a notice to quit saying your tenancy terminates and it's a first to the first uh, rental period. I would give a 30-day notice to quit saying your tenancy is going to terminate on December 1st. Please fully vacate by that date. The language that you see in a lot of form notices to quit say your tenancy is going to terminate at the end of the next rental period um, or 30 days, whichever is longer. I don't love that, it's just kind of weirdly worded, but I still use it sometimes. And the time I use it when it's important is when I'm terminating a tenancy and it's very close to the end of the month. So right now is October 14th. I'm not worried about getting notice um, this month for December 1st, but if it was the last day of the month and I wasn't sure my constable was gonna get service today, then I would put the language that your tenancy is gonna terminate at the end of your next rental period. That way I'm protected in that whenever the constable serves them, we now then know what the termination is gonna be. Obviously, everyone always talks about February. Think about February, that's 28 days. You wanna be really careful if you're sending a termination at the end of January. It can't be for March 1st because of how few days there are. Uh, next page, please. Beware of these issues. Multiple notices to quit. A lot of landlords do it, it's a big mistake. They send a notice for non-payment, then they send a notice of fault, then they send a 30-day notice. Most have different periods. One is 14, one is seven, one is 30. The reason why that is issue is because go back to the very first slide, which simply says it has to be clear and unequivocal. And if you're sending multiple notices, it's not clear, it's not unequivocal. It's gonna be a problem, you're gonna get bounced. Avoid it if you can fix it. A lot of times landlords call me, they say they already sent those notices and I say, all right, let's clean it up. Let's send a nice clean one now. Um, one notice, alleging multiple reasons for termination. This is something I do all the time. And again, you just wanna be clear and unequivocal. So for example, a tenant at will who's not paying the rent, but no matter what, you wanna terminate the tenancy, regardless of whether they cure or not. So in that circumstance, today's October 14th, landlord calls and says, listen, I wanna terminate this tenant's tenancy. They're behind on their rent, but even if they pay the rent, I want to terminate the tenancy. So it's really important in that circumstance to go with the longer notice period. 
You want the 30-day notice period and allege both. So you would simply say, I'm terminating your tenancy as of December 1st. The reason for the termination is you're behind on your rent and I'm giving you a generic 30-day notice in accordance with 186 section 12, which either one of us are allowed to do because it's a tenancy will. I go even, I, I state it even more clearly because there is cure language on the non-payment piece to say simply, you have a right to cure the non-payment part of this notice. But regardless, even if you cure that, your tenancy is still terminated on the 30th. It's clear, it's unequivocal. I'm sure some of the tenant attorneys would look at that and maybe give it a bit more analysis, but it's something I've done for many years. And again, I just fall back on the fact that I'm very clearly stating exactly what's happening and the tenancy's terminating on a very clear day. Um, number three here is the 186.13. That's simply something to note that a lot of people have questions on when a property is sold, what happens to a tenancy. Under that statute, the last sentence of it is very clearly stated, tenancy will survive a sale. So if you've got one owner and there's a tenant at will and it passes to the new owner, the new owner steps in to the same place as the previous owner. Really important when you have people buying rental property and investment property because they're stepping in and sometimes can step into issues uh, because they take the place of the existing landlord. We can go on to the next slide, please. When it comes to service of the notice to quit, it's not that you have to prove you served it. It's have, you have to prove that they got it. And how do you do that? You can do that many different ways. It doesn't have to be by constable. It doesn't have to be by sheriff. I strongly recommend you use a constable because that's the easiest way. The number one way to get a tenant to say they got it is simply hand it to them and ask them for a receipt. But more often than not, a tenant's not gonna sign a receipt, so that's not gonna work. The next best thing, in my opinion, is to have a constable do it because you have to prove that they got it on a certain date. Some obvious issues that come up in that circumstance. The tenant denies they got it. The notice was left with a household member. Notice left simply at last and usual. Those are all common issues and you got to analyze them on a case-by-case -case basis. I always like to fall back on the constable having service. If, 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 I'm, if I'm serving in the middle of a month or any time during the month, I simply tell the constable, my constable, and I can't, if your constable would leave a notice to quit with someone who's not named on that notice, like a household member, you should get a new constable. That would not be good service. I don't know a constable who would do that. Um, but quite frankly, I have seen it before. So you want to be really careful with it. If they just, if you get three people named on the notice to quit and they leave it to some fourth person who's not named, that would not be good. I would make them serve it again. Um, the tenant can simply deny that they got it, all things being equal, if there's no other facts and no other information and the tenant was home and not away and they just simply deny that they got it, but we have a constable saying that they delivered it on a certain date, I can't, I haven't seen a judge or someone be willing to say, all right, we're gonna dismiss this for lack of service. But there are often more factors involved where the constable says they delivered it to the last unusual on the last day of the month and the tenant can show that they were on vacation that week or they were away or some other factor that comes into play that now gives evidence to say that, oh, it's likely they didn't got it because simply having the constable do it doesn't mean that they got it. But it certainly is, it, it's the next best thing to having a receipt for it. But when you're, when you're talking to these mom and pop landlords, it could be as simply as an email. You know, they serve the notice to quit and then they shoot an email to the tenant saying, hey, listen, I just wanna make sure you got that. And the email writes back and 
says, yeah, I got it. What the hell are you doing? Why are you keeping me out? But hey, they said they got it. That's enough. That's simple. That's clean. They said they got it. You don't need any more than that. Doesn't mean doesn't need to be anything more fancy. And this is really important because when you're when you're there that day for lawyer of the day, and the landlord's talking to you, what you're trying to do is you want to analyze the situation for them. They're on for trial that day, and they come in and you look at this and you see that they don't have proof of service. And you say, listen, you might want to consider trying to resolve this case with the tenant today. And they say to you, oh, my tenant wants three months to move. And I'm here for today for court and I got a trial date and I want them out in a week. That's crazy. And then you give them the best advice possible. You can say to them, listen, you're nuts. Do an agreement with them for three months. Because what's going to happen is they're going to, the tenant's going to go over and talk to the lawyer today for the tenant attorney. And they're going to see that this is defective, or they're gonna file, they're gonna ask to file a late answer, and they're gonna get a late answer, and this matter's gonna get delayed, and then it's gonna get dismissed, and you're gonna have to start the whole process over again. Whereas you get a tenant who's being reasonable, who just needs a few months to find time. So you work out and keep moving. It's all about expectations and giving them a reality of how these matters can go, can drag on. Uh, there's a section later where we're gonna talk about executions, and when it comes to a no-fault eviction, Tenants have, the judges have the statutory authority to give tenants up to six months to find a place. And if they're elderly or disabled, up to a year. So when you, when, from the landlord's perspective, one of the, in 20 years of practice of representing landlords, the biggest value I can give to these landlords is explaining to them how much worse this could be for them and how it's actually a really good deal to just be reasonable and deal with time because it can very easily go in a very different direction for them. And that's why analyzing, when you're sitting down with them that day at the lawyer at the table, analyzing all these details and going through and make sure it was all done right. And even if everything's perfect, it's still in their best interest to usually try and work something out with the tenant. That's always better than leaving it in the hands of the court. Um, we go on to the next one there. And constable service, this is, I believe, all that we just, these are all issues we just covered. If we can go on to the next one. Those are examples of notices to quit. These are examples that are right from the internet, just standard form. They're not poorly worded, they're fine. It is my intention to terminate your tenancy at the end of the next rental period. You wanna make a star on this slide here on the bottom. Even though there's no required language for a notice, I strongly recommend every notice to quit should have what's called a reservation of rights regarding the rent. You don't want to accidentally reinstate a tenancy if you're a landlord. So you want to always state what's on the bottom of this one, that any money paid after this date will be for use and occupancy only, not rent. That's really important because you don't want to end up terminating a tenancy and then later accepting rent and end up establishing a new tenancy. So while there are not, while there's not required language for a notice to quit, my personal notice to quit are usually about three pages long because even though I like to keep them clear and concise, I also like to cover a lot of different topics about I like to go into more specifics about how they can cure, where they can cure, how they know what to cure. I like to go into reservational rights language. I like to talk about things about other people who are on the property who aren't tenants. Um, so the notices can be as long or short as you like. I think it's important to make them clean, concise, uh, and if nothing else, have the reservational rights language um, for use in occupancy only. Next slide is another example of a notice to quit. Uh, we're going to jump ahead to the next slide, though, which is public or subsidized housing. This is the exception on the notice to quit. Quite frankly, 
there's a lot of confusion when it comes to Section 8, I think, and even among Section 8 representatives. I have Section 8 representatives tell me all the time, after the first year, their tenant will, you can terminate for 30 days. You can terminate for 10, 30 days. I hear that all the time, quite frankly. For my first 10 years in practice as a lawyer, I was sending 30-day no-fault notices to quit to tenants at will. I mean, to Section 8 tenants all the time. I never once had an issue with it. I was very surprised 10 years ago to actually read the Section 8 lease and come to the understanding that Section 8 leases cannot be terminated unless it's good cause. And there is a very, there is a very specific section of the good cause that after the first year that talks about reasons that are pretty loose that kind of almost feel like a regular 30-day notice to quit, but it still has to be alleged for a Section 8 tenant. The good cause, the kind of blanket one, is a business or economic reason. If you want to raise the rent, if you want to have someone, a family member live there, if you want to do a renovation. So those all fall under good cause in a Section 8 lease, but that's only after the first year. I can't, I can't believe how many times I hear and quite frankly, from Section 8 representatives as well, oh, just send a 30-day notice, just send a 30-day notice. These days in the House of Court, most people are well aware of this. A Section 8 tenancy can only be terminated for good cause. And, and you want to look to the Section 8 lease as well because they require actual specific language. BHA is the one that has exact quoted language that has to be in a notice to quit. It says specifically your notice can only be terminated for a business or economic reason. It says exactly what you need to put. I, quite frankly, take that language and put it in every Section 8 notice I give, even though I know like MBHP and other uh, housing authorities don't have that exact language. They still require you to put the reason. But BHA, as far as I know, is the only one that has the exact quoted language. But just to be safe, I use that quoted language in any Section 8 notice I ever give. Um, and the other most important thing with a Section 8 notice to quit is it has to be served on the tenant, but also it has to be served on Section 8. But what's really important, my constable, I, t I already have a relationship with him, and I tell him anytime he gets a notice to quit from me to a Section 8 tenant, I want proof of service back that it was sent to both the tenant and a Section 8. Fortunately, with Section 8, it doesn't need to be constable service. I just have him prove that it was mailed to the Section 8 representative. So on any notice to quit that I do that involves Section 8 on the proof of service back from the constable. It shows service on the tenant and sent to the Section 8 office. Uh, so take really, you really want to take care anytime someone comes in with the Section 8 tenant. Next page. So now we're past the summons and complaint. We're past the notice to quit and we're now on to the summons and complaint. So <laughs> This, this package was put together, I think, has been put together many times. I made some tweaks, but I made some changes. But this section here was left in here, not the mnemonic seat or the three Monday in a trial, but the middle part was left in from previous training. So I'll read that for you so you can know how to fill in a summons and complaint. You need the service date, entry date, answer date, trial date. The service date is not earlier than 30 days, not later than seven days. The entry date is the second Monday before the Thursday. The answer date is the Monday before the Thursday. And the trial date is the second Thursday after the entry date. Pretty clear, right? No, it's a mess. It's confusing as hell. Um, when you read that, it makes your head spin. Now, to me, it's very easy. I've been doing it for years. But the first time you read that, you go, what the hell is that? So I don't, 
if you need to really analyze a summons and look, you can read that and break it all down and that's fine. But when you're filling out a summons as a landlord, when you have a landlord coming to you saying, how do you fill this out? I say there's a mnemonic seat that I made up and then there's the three Monday and trial rule. That's what I go by. Three Monday and trial rule and mnemonic seat. On every single summons I've ever filed in the last 15 years, on the top right corner, I've written the word seat, S-E-A-T. The clerks at the courts know that there's my summons because they see the word seat written at the top. And above the word seat, I take the next three Mondays and a Thursday and I write those dates. So if we were doing a summons today, what's the next three Mondays? The 19th, the 26th, and the 2nd. And then Thursday is the 5th. So right above the word seat, I write 19, 26, 2, and 5. Those are my dates. Serve, enter, answer, trial. Next three Mondays, I have to serve by the first Monday, the 19th. Enter by the next Monday. Tenant answers by the next Monday. And then the trial is the Thursday after that. Now, of course, to make it complicated, in the last couple of years, the housing courts have expanded dramatically. Northeast Housing Court has five different trial days. Boston Housing Court has three. COVID has now really messed that up. The general rule is the trial date is the Thursday after the answer day. That is, right now, and I think Chris will touch on this, we have new summonses that just came out yesterday. The trial dates are gonna be picked for us by the court. So we're not gonna be putting trial dates on summonses anymore, at least for the foreseeable future. The trial, we're gonna be simply giving the, the um, service, the enter, the answer dates, or the service and entry dates are gonna be the same. The answer and trial date is gonna be determined by the court. So once it's filed, the courts can then gonna notify us of a trial date and notify us of an answer date. I'm assuming we may get back to where we were before, who knows? Um, so when we do, you wanna analyze this section specifically. So when you're looking at a summons to make sure they did it right, really re read through this and make sure the dates all jive. When you're helping someone fill out a summons, use the three Mondays and a trial date. It's, it's always worked for me. I think it's pretty clear. Um, next page is the sample of the summons. The new summons that just came out yesterday is almost identical. It just simply does not have a trial date on it. And the description at the bottom is on the back for the tenants to be able to answer. It's going to be a lot easier for tenants to file an answer. Um, so the land, that's something important when you're talking to landlords. Um, there's going to be a lot more leeway with tenants. I think right now the court is saying that they could file three days before the trial date, whatever they end up picking that trial date to be. Um, so the next slide is the defendant's answer. This says that it's the Monday before the Thursday trial date. That's traditionally how it's always been. I think uh, as of right now under COVID, it's going to be now three days before whatever the trial is. And on that answer date, that's the time for the tenant that they can file answer, jury trial, counterclaims. What's important to advise landlords is that even though you're seeing them on the trial day oftentimes, and the tenant hasn't filed an answer yet, more often than not, it's been my experience that when a tenant, a pro se tenant, asks to file a late answer in discovery, they're going to get it. I don't know when the last time I ever was successful in saying it's too late for them to file. Jury, on the other hand, the courts have been much more strict on. Jury requests need to be done by that trial date. And more often than not, I've gotten the court to not allow a late request for jury trial. Uh, and I, I don't see any reason why that's not going to continue. Um, and that's, that's important because when you're talking to landlords, when all of a sudden, when you're there for trial date, 
and the tenant who's pro se can now delay this and file answer and counterclaims and all they want is three months to move and they'll pay their rent and you don't realize that having all the electricity in the basement on their unit is a really big deal and will cost you three months in a defense to the case and you can just end it today you want to end it today do an agreement give them the time um defenses and counterclaims they're not compulsory in summary process and that's important because even if they didn't allege something now it doesn't mean they can't bring it up later next slide transfers these are important too uh, when you're doing lawyer for the day if you're not in the housing court if you're in the district court the tenant can transfer a case anytime to the housing court as long as they do it the day before the trial date no matter what the trial date is that's important because that can cause delays. Before we're talking weeks delays on cases now with COVID, who knows how long a, a transfer is gonna delay a case. Next page. Executions, when it comes to landlords, you get two types of executions. You get one for possession, you get one for money. One for money is good for 20 years, use any time within that 20 years. Uh, the one for possession is good for 90 days after you get it. However, when you're dealing, we talked about this earlier, when you're dealing with a tenant at will, even if you win your case, the court has the statutory authority to give them up to six months to find a place or up to a year if they're handicapped or disabled. Next page. When you have an execution and you're ready to levy, you give it to a constable, levy means to move them out. They have to give a 48 hour notice. In the rare circumstance that you have a non-payment case that wasn't settled by way of an agreement that goes non-payment, you win, you get the execution, all of a sudden the tenant wants to pay, you think, great, I'm gonna get my money and move them out. If you accept all that money, the execution's now dead. You wanna be careful with that. Uh, what I do in those circumstances doesn't come up, sometimes I'll accept partial, but I still wanna go forward with the levy. Uh, more often than not, we're dealing with agreements for judgment and that specific portion can be altered by way of an agreement. It's very common that you have agreements where there's payments and a levy date much later. Next slide. More on the execution. Execution must issue within three months of judgment. That's news to me. I never knew that. I don't, that doesn't usually come up from a practical perspective for me. Usually we get judgment and we get the execution. I assume by when there's an agreement for judgment that whatever that is, I don't know what, um, can be altered by way of the agreement, uh, but that's something I, I had never seen or come across. I'll be curious to see if either one of my uh, uh, colleagues today have, an, have, have a thought on that as to where it would come into play. Uh, the levy, the execution is only good for 90 days. That's the next one. Uh, stays, we already talked about, um, well, we talked about the, the uh, statute stays, but even though you have an execution, even though you have a move out date, there's nothing that can ever stop you. Even if you have an agreement that says the tenant won't come back in and ask for more time, the tenant can always come back in and ask for more time. Whether they get it or not, it's in the judge's discretion, but they can always come in and ask. Uh, there's nothing to ever prevent them from going in and trying. Uh, and you can get new executions, but you'd be very, very careful to do it within the time period before the execution expires. Again, with COVID now, there's some exceptions there. A lot of executions expired during COVID and the court has standing orders that are allowing us to get new executions. But that's unique specifically to COVID. And very lastly is post foreclosure. Uh, the last slide. 
So post foreclosure is, is a little different as to what the tenants are. We've got state law and we've got federal law. Under the state law, when you have a property that's foreclosed on, the tenancy survives as a tenant at will. The owner is never a tenant. So when you're dealing with an owner, one thing we didn't talk about at all, we've talked about you know tenants and notices to quit. There are circumstances, they're rare, it's not something to go into here, but there are circumstances where there are occupants in a property who aren't tenants. They're not trespassers, they're simply occupants. And an example of that would be a post foreclosure, an owner of the property, who owned the property, lost it in foreclosure. They're not a tenant, but they're still rightfully in possession. And, and those circumstances, I still recommend giving notices to quit in those circumstances against owners. You don't want to call them tenants, but you still, courts like to see a notice of a termination date even if it is a non-tenant. But a tenant survives as a tenant at will under state law, but more importantly, under federal law, bona fide leases still remain as leases. And the key there is bona fide leases, and that's defined very specifically in the statute. I had a case one, one time where the tenant said they had a lease, you know, a 50-year lease at $500 a month. <laughs> that certainly didn't fly, but they did their best to show that they had that lease. Um, so it breaks down what it is, you know, it can't be a family member or a relative or things like that. But if you do have a tenant who has a bona fide lease and their property is foreclosed on, that lease survives. And that, I didn't know that quite frankly. I, that, this was, uh, this was supposed to, this law I thought had lapsed and I didn't think it was the case. And only recently did I look up to see that Trump, believe it or not, was the one who removed that provision. So that is now still law again in Massachusetts, the PTFA. Um, so when it's tenant at will, after a post foreclosure, you got to give a 90 day notice. And if it's a lease, you have to honor that bona fide lease. So amazingly, and I don't know how much time that took, but that's the landlord side. And I'll just close with this thought. There, there are, as I said to my colleagues before this, I mean, I could speak to all of you on a notice to quit for two hours or a security deposit issue or something. This is very... I've been in this game for 20 years. My partner, Chris, has been in just as long as you're going to hear from later. He and I are probably as expert as you could be in certain areas, whether in certain areas of landlord-tenant law, whether it's the security deposit statute or 8A. Whereas we've read those statutes probably a thousand times each, and we still, on probably a weekly basis, fight about how they're interpreted and how the court interprets them. So as much as there are, very specific guidelines and very specific rules. Being an attorney in the housing court is a bit of an art form and you wanna really look at the global picture when you're talking to these people. And, and you wanna comfort them as lawyer for the day and explain to them that when they go in there, they just need to speak to the judge. They don't interrupt, they don't fight, they don't argue, let the other side speak and then present their side cleanly and specifically and, and and look at it from a reasonable perspective. Um, and, and if you take that approach, it'll usually work out good for you. So that's all I got. I'm sure you have questions. I'm happy to answer them at the end. I'll sit tight uh, while my colleagues speak. So I think I'm next. Am I, Chris? Are you at the end? I think so. I think that's right. Okay. So hi, all. I'm Maureen McDonough. I'm a clinical teacher at the Harvard Law School. I'm a lecturer on law, um, and I've been in this game 30 years or so, um, and you're all thinking to yourself, that's impossible, she's so young looking. Um, but in fact, it's true, um, 30 years in the um, landlord-tenant 
practice. I represent tenants who are being evicted. Um, so we're going to talk, and I'm going to bring up my um, bring up my screen. All right, it's not ideal, but it is what it is. Maureen, if you want to just my talk on your, perfect, thank you. There we go, we've got it. Okay, um, so we're gonna talk about um, how to defend an eviction case. So this is a crash course in tenants' uh, rights in Massachusetts. Um, I'll mention a couple of resources. There is, um, um, a website at masslegalhelp.org, masslegalhelp.org, um, that covers a lot of the topics that we're gonna cover today. There's also a handbook, uh, a pretty thick handbook, called Legal Tactics, and it is, a, uh, and it is on the masslegalhelp.org page. You can find the, um, all of the chapters of Legal Tactics. There are chapters on security deposit, there are chapters on um, terminating tendencies, there are chapters on eviction defense, um, post foreclosure, um, lots of chapters on a lot of the things that we're going to talk about today. Some of these things Ken touched on, so I'll skip over them quickly um, because we are uh, running a little behind, I think. Um, okay, we're going to talk about um, the types of eviction, non-payment, fault and fault, uh, tenants, defenses, and counterclaims. In Massachusetts, a tenant can raise counterclaims in an eviction case that through a specific statute, General Laws Chapter 239-8A, become defenses to the eviction. So winning on a counterclaim can mean that you win the eviction and win the right to stay. So it's important not only to know the typical um, defenses that a tenant can raise, things like um, retaliation and discrimination, but it's also important to know about the counterclaims a tenant can raise because those tenants' counterclaims can become a defense and can win you the right to stay in the apartment. Tenants are often looking for more time to find another place. Massachusetts, um, Boston specifically, but the whole metro Boston area, it is very difficult to find an apartment to move into. It is very difficult if you've been evicted from an apartment to find another apartment to move into. Therefore, what a lot of tenants are looking for is more time to find a place to move into. Most aren't looking to stay forever. Most are looking to stay though until they find a new place to land. So the golden rule, as I, we like to say, is in Massachusetts, you need a judge to evict somebody from court. Um, a lease that says a landlord can evict a tenant without going to court is illegal. <laughs> <coughs> Sorry, I'll apologize once. I have some asthma and I cough a lot. Um, I tell my students I choose to find it charming and I invite them and all of you to do the same. So I invite you to find it charming as I um, cough throughout a little bit. Um, a landlord who attempts to avoid the legal um, procedures for eviction can be liable to the tenant for an illegal eviction, which has damages and can win you the right to stay. 
if a client engages, if a client tells you, if you talk to a client and they say the landlord is trying to evict me, um, he put my things out without a, an eviction from a judge or he's turned off the heat or when I had recently the landlord turned on the heat all summer. I had that once before, it's been a long time, but I've had that once before. Turned on the heat all summer, turned it up to very high. Then you wanna advise your client to go to court to seek a temporary restraining order. They should call the court nowadays, not just show up at court, but call the court about getting a temporary restraining order. The, the court hears these matters on emergency bases and will continue, uh, will um, hear the case quickly. So Chris talked about, I'm sorry, um, Ken talked about the types of tenancies um, that you can have. Tenancies with a written lease. They, a written lease, obviously it's in writing and it has a specific length. It has an end date. That's how you can tell something is a lease. There are tenants at will notices, um, agreements that can be either oral or written. Uh, when I was representing landlords, I know these guys are going to find that shocking, but at one point in my career, I've represented some landlords. Um, I would usually tell them to use a tenancy at will agreement instead of a, um, a lease. It gave them all the benefits of a lease in that you could write down things like no pets and no washing machine and you could write all that down. Um, but you could terminate it whenever you wanted to. So if you wanted to raise the rent, you could terminate the tenancy at will by giving a full rental periods notice and then raise the rent and offer a new tenancy, a written tenancy at will agreement. There are tenants at sufferance. Those are folks whose tenancy has ended um, and they remain in the apartment after the tenancy has ended and there's tenants by regulation. Um, those are those who include tenants in public and subsidized housing. Um, Ken talked a little about that. The landlord has to properly terminate the tenancy in order to begin the eviction proceeding. And I'm going to talk about this even though Ken did somewhat, because there is rich ground here for getting the case dismissed if the landlord has not brought the case properly. The, um, the landlord has many duties in bringing a case properly. And one of the things you can do to get a tenant more time is to file a motion to dismiss that the landlord did not bring the case properly and therefore you can get the case dismissed, giving the tenant more time. Um, it can also serve if you're talking to a tenant for the first time on their hearing date and they have not asked for a jury trial, if you get the case dismissed, they can file an answer, counterclaims, a jury trial in the next case and set themselves up better for the next case. So as we talked about, the notice is a notice to quit. Anyone can deliver the notice to quit can be sent by mail, but the landlord has the burden of showing that the tenancy notice to quit was when it was actually received. We have circumstances where somebody's out of town, the constable come and comes and says, I left, the pro I left it at the last unusual place of abode, you know, on the 14th. What's relevant is when the tenant got it, not when the constable left it. Um, Um, and I note here that tenants with leases can't have their tenancies terminated during the lease term unless they have violated the lease. Uh, we do a little exercise with our students to say what, you know, in many circumstances, how would you terminate the tenancy? And one of the trick questions we ask is, you know, the landlord wants to raise the rent in the middle of a lease. How do you terminate the tenancy? You don't, you can't. Um, the ten if, if all the landlord wants to do is raise the rent, he has to wait till the end of the tenancy period wait till the end of the lease. 
Um, there is a right to cure in non-payment cases. And this is important that you talk to your client. If you're talking to them before they're in court, they may have the right to cure. The right to cure can be very important in establishing a 239-8A defense. If, the, if a client comes to you and tells you they've been withholding their rent and they have all the money, this happens sometimes. Clients have all the money and they've been withholding their rent, um, but they have not given proper notice to the landlord or have not given notice to the landlord of conditions of disrepair in ways that they can prove they have given notice to the landlord of conditions of disrepair. You may want to have them cure, pay all the money, and then send a good notice, either a letter in a way you can prove the landlord got it or um, have an inspector come to the property and do an inspection. Some way you can prove the landlord was given notice of the conditions of disrepair, then you can start withholding the rent. The, we're gonna talk about that statute 239-8A um, that turns counterclaims into a defense. One of the things it says is the tenant wins if the landlord had notice of the condition before the tenant was behind and was in arrears in their rent. Now Massachusetts calls an eviction action a summary process action. Uh, what does it mean that it's summary process? Procedures are meant to be swift. They're intentionally quick. Um, so as not to cause landlords additional financial harm. If the process were that a landlord who wants to evict a client has to start a case in the Superior Court, um, and, and the case, an average Superior Court case, I'm sure you all know, three years probably an average Superior Court case, um, if you're lucky, um, there'd be no more landlords, right? Nobody would own any property anymore because by the time they got to the end of the eviction case, their house would be in foreclosure. The goal of the summary process action is for the judge to determine who should have possession of the apartment and whether or not any money damages are owed to either party. Unlike many states, um, as we said, Massachusetts has uh, strong tenant protections um, <clears throat> and the tenant can win the eviction if the tenant can show the landlord is in violation of any of the landlord laws and there are strong landlord, there are strong tenant protections. There are three types of eviction with different rights for tenants. The non-payment of rent we talked about, tenants can raise counterclaims against rent claims. If the tenant loses, there's no law saying the court should cons um, consider a stay of execution in a non-payment case. In a fault case, there are no counterclaims. No, there are defenses, but no counterclaims. Defenses of retaliation and discrimination, at least in a fault case. And again, no law saying that the court should consider a stay of execution. In a no-fault case, the tenant can counterclaim. If the tenant loses, the law says the judge should consider a stay of execution to give time to the tenant to relocate. And as Ken said, a judge can give a tenant up to six months to find an apartment um, and could give a tenant up to a year to find an apartment if that tenant were elderly or handicapped. Um, generally, we don't see judges saying, okay, um, I find for the landlord on this case, but I'm gonna give the tenant a year stay of execution. That's not usually what they do. What they usually do is dole out periods of stays of execution in shorter increments of time to say that um, I'll give you three months, give me evidence that you have 
looked for an apartment, evidence that you have made a good faith attempt at finding a place. And if I find that you've made a good faith um, attempt at looking for an apartment, then I'll give you more time. If I find you haven't made good faith efforts to find an apartment in that time, then I won't extend the stay. But you're always asking for a stay if the tenant, um, in a no-fault case, if the judge finds against your client. The, um, Ken went over the summons and complaint and the, the, um, the, the dates. It's very difficult. The answer date now is going to be three days before the first event in court. The first event in court, and uh, Chris is going to talk about this, the first event in court is going to be something like a, um, a hearing on, I'm sorry, it's going to be something like a mediation. That's going to be the first event in court, and the answer is going to be due three days before the first event. There are on at messlegalhelp.org, there is a form answer that you can use. Uh, we're coming out with a fillable form answer, but right now there's a form answer that you can print out um, and use. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, the answer allows you to help the tenant. It, it's, it's something that's probably not so easy for a tenant to fill out themselves, but with help from a lawyer or an advocate, they're able to fill out the answer to raise their um, claims to raise their defenses, to raise their counterclaims, to ask for a jury trial. Um, and the answer is due, as I said, three business days, I think, before the first event. I think it's gonna be three business days, not three days. But we'll see when the um, court rolls out its, um, finally rolls out its rules for uh, coming back after the start of the moratorium next week. The housing court, whether you should transfer to the housing court or stay in a district court, um, usually for tenants we recommend transferring the case to a housing court. The housing judges are considered to be more expert on how um, 239-8A works and how counterclaims can become defenses. So they're more expert on the issues that Ken talked about, like catcher and who's allowed to bring an eviction action and you know that a manager can't bring an eviction action, it has to be the owner or the lessor. Um, these things are more likely to be well known in the housing court and less likely to be well known in the district court. So we usually recommend transferring. You have the right to transfer up until the day before the hearing in um, the district court <clears throat> and the housing court will send, once you send the notice of transfer, be polite. If you're going to transfer a case, be polite. Let the other side know. We've seen cases where folks have done a transfer the day before um, the trial was supposed to be heard in district court and hasn't, haven't called the other side to tell them that they're transferring the case out. Um, it's ridiculous. Be polite and let the other side know that you're transferring the case. The case won't be heard in district court. Uh, it's going to be heard in housing court instead, and they'll get a new date in the mail. They may, may not believe you. They'll call the court, but that's fine. Let them call the court and um, let the court tell them that it will be heard in housing court, and they'll get a new date in the mail. Okay, so defenses. I'm going to slow down here and talk about the defenses that tenants have. 
um, tenants have defenses involving conditions of how bad housing conditions. Um, if the tenant can show that the housing conditions existed, the landlord knew about the conditions before the tenant was in arrears, the tenant didn't cause the bad condition, and the condition can be repaired without the tenant moving out, then they can be abated a fair amount of rent. The theory goes uh, under the warranty of habitability that every apartment is, uh, when a landlord rents an apartment, they guarantee, they warrant that it's up to the state sanitary code, that it is habitable. Habitable is just a term of art for mostly meaning up to the state sanitary code. The landlord says the property is up to the state sanitary code and it will remain up to the state sanitary code throughout the tenancy. The landlord warrants that whether they want to or not. That's a Massachusetts, um, it's built into every tenancy in Massachusetts. The landlord cannot disclaim this warranty of habitability. They can't put in the lease, we agree the warranty of habitability does not apply in this matter. Um, that they can't disclaim it in any way. So there's no such thing as we hear often in court, well, your client took the apartment as is. Your client rented it for a lower rent, but they took it as is. There's no such thing as an as-is apartment in Massachusetts. The theory goes that in order to keep properties up to the state sanitary code so that there are no health crises, the, that the, you can't agree to rent an apartment that is below the state sanitary code, that doesn't meet all the requirements of the state sanitary code. If the court finds that there was um, in a warranty of habitability, if the court finds that there was a violation, that there was a material breach of that warranty of habitability, you can get damages. You get damages on a per, uh, percentage reduction basis. A judge can say, for instance, that if there were mice in the apartment and the landlord knew about the mice, or should have known about the mice, knew or should have known about the mice on a certain date. From that date until the date the mice problem is fixed, you're entitled to a reduction in your rent. You shouldn't be paying full rent for an apartment that was not fully up to the state sanitary code. And you're entitled to a reduced fair market. The, the calculation that the court makes is the fair market value of the property in repair in full repair, the full fair market value minus the fair market value in disrepair. So times, times the duration, essentially. The court says you uh, paid for an apartment up to the state sanitary code for two months. You got an apartment that was worth less than the state sanitary code. Um, the judge or jury will decide how much less it was. Um, they'll decide that on a percentage reduction method. They might say, the apartment was only worth 80%, so we're gonna give you a 20% reduction on your rent. If that's true, then for two months, you get a 20% reduction on your rent. Um, if the, the landlord had to know about the condition of disrepair, that can be actual notice or it can be constructive notice. In actual notice, the landlord is notified by the tenant, by somebody else. It's not about the tenant reporting the condition, it's, about what the landlord knew and when he knew it. Um, I used to 
joke with my students um, that it was like Nixon in the Watergate. Like what did the question on everyone's lips at the time was what did the president know and when did he know it? Um, they're all so young these days that is probably all of you are so young these days um, <laughs> um, that that goes over your head. Uh, but the question on the judge's lips of what did the landlord know about conditions of disrepair and when did he know it or she know it? And if you can prove that there were conditions of disrepair, you're entitled to damages. You're entitled to damages whether there were, um, whether you're entitled to possession or not, you're entitled to damages. The question of possession will come up on whether or not the landlord knew about the conditions before you were behind in rent. As I said, there can be actual notice or there can be constructive notice. If the condition ex existed at the inception of the tenancy, this constructive notice. If it existed in a common area, there's constructive notice. So the landlord has notice. If you're talking about the front steps being broken, the landlord has notice from the time they're broken because he has constructive notice because they're in a common area. This presumptive knowledge by the landlord whenever there is an inspection report from the city's inspectional services department. Um, we always advise our clients first to call the landlord and complain about conditions of disrepair or to write to them and complain about conditions of disrepair. But if they don't get any response or a timely response to their request, then they should call the City of Boston Inspectional Services Department or the Board of Health in the town that they're in. The Board of Health will do an inspection whether the property is up to the state sanitary code or not. And if they find that it's not up to the state sanitary code, they will notify the landlord. There is presumptive knowledge of the condition of disrepair once there is the city of Boston or um, other town board of health notice to the tenant, I'm sorry, notice to the landlord. Um, so it's very valuable to get um, an inspection. An inspection also allows you to have a third party um, who has been in the property who can testify to the judge about whether the conditions exist um, and when, at least when the inspection was done, whether the conditions existed. You, you take it out of the realm of the he said, she said, in that the tenant says there's a bad condition, uh, there's a problem with mice, the landlord says, no, there isn't, uh, and the judge is left to decide, you know, like a red light accident, left to decide who's telling the truth. If you get a third party inspector, you know, um, they're, they're a good witness for you. Um, I'll talk next about number three, breach of quiet enjoyment. If the landlord interferes with the tenant's use and enjoyment of the apartment, the tenant can seek damages of up to three months rent and actual damages. It's actual up to three months rent or actual damages, whichever is greater, plus attorney's fees and costs, which is very important. Many of the laws, warranty of habitability is based on common law, but many of the laws that are written, the security deposit law, the breach of quiet enjoyment law, the unfair and deceptive practices law, the consumer protection law, um, all are fee shifters in Massachusetts, meaning if the judge finds that the landlord violated that section of the law, then the judge finds that the landlord has to pay the tenant's attorney's fees. This is hugely important when you're negotiating a case. If in fact you're negotiating against a landlord, you know, um, you know, your tenant owes three months rent, 
um, but there are conditions of disrepair that the landlord knew about. Um, if the judge finds that those conditions of disrepair were something akin to negligence, the landlord knew about those mice for a long time and didn't fix them, um, then you can also win damages under a breach of quiet enjoyment theory. If the judge finds that you win damages under a breach of quiet enjoyment theory, you win actual damages or three months rent, whichever is greater. So in that the um, example that I gave where you won 20% for two months, three months rent would be greater and you would win three months rent plus attorney's fees and costs. It may make, like Ken said earlier, it may make a lot more sense for the landlord's attorney to be willing to negotiate if it looks like you're gonna win uh, on one of your claims and it looks like you're gonna win attorney's fees on top of that. It drives them to the table faster. Anything that the landlord does that interferes with the tenant's use and enjoyment of the apartment um, can be a breach of quiet enjoyment. The, the common cases we see is landlords who come into the apartment without permission. Um, so some landlords keep a key and then walk in. There've been you know, several cases where landlords have walked in and people are in various states of dress because um, <clears throat> the landlord came in without knocking. The, um, one of the sort of seminal cases in the, is that a landlord, when a tenant lost her roommate, the landlord decided, and she was a religious person who could not live with, uh, she was unmarried and could not live with a man who was not a relative. Um, the, the landlord placed a stranger in the apartment and when she came home from work, he said, here's your new roommate, he lives here now. Um, she said, I can't live with a stranger who, I don't even know this man, he's a total stranger. Um, you know, that was a breach of quiet enjoyment. Um, she had a right to enjoy her apartment without interference from the landlord. All right, violations of the security deposit. For good reason, Massachusetts has a pretty strong security deposit law. We found out what a good reason it was during the foreclosure crisis when millions of dollars of security deposits went up in smoke. Massachusetts says the landlord must place the security deposit in a separate interest-bearing Massachusetts bank account, pay interest on that, um, and can be liable to up to three times the value of the security deposit if he doesn't return it properly when he's supposed to return it. The landlord um, <clears throat> has to place the, that security deposit in an interest-bearing Massachusetts bank account. What we found during the foreclosure crisis, I was talking to tenants every day whose landlord was foreclosed on who did not have their security deposit in a separate interest-bearing bank account, and the landlord was gone and the money was gone. Um, I must have talked to hundreds myself. There were thousands and thousands across the country where the security deposit just went missing when the landlord went missing, when the property went into foreclosure. Uh, I have great sympathy for the landlords who lost the property in foreclosure, um, but they were not, in, um, that's the reason why the law requires that the money be kept in a separate interest-bearing bank account protected from the landlord's creditors to pay to the tenant when um, the tenant moves out if they have caused only um, normal wear and tear on the property and nothing in addition to normal wear and tear. The <clears throat> so 
it's possible that you're you're talking to a landlord. I'm sorry, you're talking to a tenant, um, and they're three months behind in rent. But if the landlord has made a mistake, a serious mistake with their security deposit, acknowledges taking a security deposit, like in the lease, the the Section Eight lease has a section where the landlord acknowledges if they've accepted a. Um, a security deposit. So you've got a situation where the landlord acknowledges receiving a security deposit uh, and then didn't put it in a separate interest-bearing bank account, which we find out in discovery whether they've placed it in a separate interest-bearing bank account. We ask for the bank account number, we ask for which bank it's in, what date they placed it there, and then you can do research with the bank to find out if in fact those things are true. Um, if the landlord, it's possible that you could be looking at your, not only are you not just even, it's not that you don't owe the landlord any rent, um, it's that he then owes attorney's fees if you take the case for full representation. Unfair and deceptive practices in Massachusetts, the 93A, the um, Consumer Protection Statute, would say that it's illegal for landlords to threaten to attempt to use any unfair or deceptive practices in the trade or commerce of renting residential properties. There are Massachusetts State Attorney General regulations that say that violations of warranty of habitability, violations of the security deposit law, violations of the quiet enjoyment statute, violations of the lead paint law are all also violations. They're also unfair and deceptive practices in their violations of the consumer protection statute. Um, housing authorities are exempt an owner-occupant in a two or three-family home is not is also exempt. Be sure that you, we're talking about, though, if you're talking about an owner-occupant in a two or three-family home, that they're not in the trade or commerce. We had a situation with a, a, a landlord in Boston who was saying the statute didn't apply to him because, you know, the woman lived on his second floor. In fact, he had 10 other apartments he rented, you know, so that... Um, the, the, the statute did apply to him. He was in the trade or commerce because the woman happened to live in the same building of him as he lived in doesn't make him not in the trade or commerce of renting residential properties. If a judge decides that the unfair and deceptive practices, <coughs> you can get double or treble damages. I'm sure you're all familiar with 93A and that its value. Um, you can get double or treble damages under 93A, double or treble actual damages. You can't get double or treble three times the rent um, because that's already tripled, but you can get double or treble the actual damages. So when I talked about the mice and under warranty of habitability, you were going to get um, a 20% reduction in your rent for two months. A judge could double that to a 40% reduction in rent. And I do say judge advisedly, judges decide the consumer protection claims, not the jury. The jury may decide whether it was unfair and deceptive and the jury may decide um, other things about the consumer protection statute, but they're, um, they're not going to decide. The jury doesn't decide whether you win under the consumer protection statute, the judge does. So tenants defenses in all cases. The, the notice to quit defects. If the landlord didn't terminate the tenancy properly, um, an invalid notice to quit, um, or they didn't reserve their rights and your tenant continued to pay the rent, 
Um, there's law that says if you don't reserve the rights and the tenant continues to pay the rent, then the landlord has reinstated the tenancy has, and the notice to quit is no good anymore and they have to start again. <clears throat> so if they don't reserve the rights and your client continue to pay rent, you may be able to get the case dismissed. Um, if the notice to quit doesn't comply with lease or subsidy rules, as Ken said, the landlord has to serve the housing, has to include certain language in a Section 8 notice to quit, um, and then has to also serve the housing authority at the same time that it served the landlord. Very often, small landlords with Section 8s do this incorrectly the first time through, and you can get a case dismissed. You can file a motion to dismiss or a motion for summary judgment if there are factual disputes. Um, matters can be held for trial, but often there are no factual disputes. You can get an affidavit from the housing authority that they did not receive and quit, or they did not receive it at the same time that they received as the tenant received their notice to quit. Um, and you can resolve the factual dispute through affidavits. There will be some, um, if the landlord brings the case before the notice to quit is expired, I'm talking here about the case not fully properly filed, the landlord brings the case um, didn't properly serve the summons and complaint, brought the summons and complaint before the notice to quit expired. Um, landlords often think that a notice to quit has to be 30 days. Ken mentioned that um, if you were serving a notice to quit today, it wouldn't be for that it terminates 30 days from today. It terminates a full rental period after next begins after today. So December 1st, in other words. Landlords often, and constables, often make the mistake of saying, well, it's a 30-day notice. I'm terminating your tenancy 30 days from receipt of this notice. And that's not a correct notice to quit in most circumstances. Um, and the case is not filed properly. And you can file a motion to dismiss or a motion for summary judgment. And a defense in all cases is retaliation. There is a retaliation statute in Massachusetts if the landlord is bringing the eviction after the tenant has engaged in a protected activity. The biggest protected activities usually are complaining to inspectional services department or complaining about and writing about conditions of disrepair, filing a court ca case, filing, um, sending a letter requesting their security deposit back because the landlord hasn't ha handled it properly. All of those things are protected activities. You have a right to do them. If the landlord takes um, an action that retaliates against you, once you do that, the owner may be um, liable for a retaliation defense and liable for a counterclaim under the retaliation statute. Um, you can get one to three months rent as damages, but retaliation is a pure defense to eviction. If the judge decides uh, or the jury decides that the reason the landlord is evicting you is because you took some protected activity, you complained about conditions of disrepair, and now the landlord, um, I think Ken gave an example saying the landlord says to you something to the effect of, um, 
she owes rent, but I want to send both notices to quit because even if she pays the rent, I still want her out. If the reason he still wants her out is retaliatory because she's complaining about conditions of disrepair, that's retaliation and the tenant can win the eviction and the tenant can win the um, counterclaims as well. It's a pure defense. Even if the judge decides you still owe rent, you win the eviction action and the landlord would get a judgment, a money judgment against you for the rent. Discrimination, including reasonable accommodation. The landlord, if the landlord is discriminating against you um, because of race, national origin, presence of children, receipt of a subsidy, um, age, being over 40, there's lots of protected classes in Massachusetts. Um, receiving a subsidy is a protected class in Massachusetts. It's not in every state, but it is in Massachusetts. If that's the reason the landlord is evicting you, um, is in discrimination over one of these issues, then you can, um, you can win your case outright. Discrimination is a complete, total defense to an eviction. If the reason the landlord is bringing the eviction is retaliatory or discriminatory, then you just win outright. And um, even if you still owe rent, again, the landlord would get a judgment for the rent but wouldn't win possession. If a household member is a person with a disability and you request a reasonable accommodation and there is a nexus between the reasonable, uh, I'm sorry, there's a nexus between, between the um, reason you're being evicted and the disability, then this can be a defense. When what we see a lot is disabled people who cannot handle their money. They don't handle their money properly and they don't pay their rent. Um, it's possible that through a agreement to have a third party pay their rent, take it out of, the, have a third party paid as their payee as it's called through social security. Their social security is paid to a third party payee that third party pays the rent and gives the rest of the money to the tenant. It's possible often to preserve these tenancies um, because the landlord will get the rent and the disability was related. There was a nexus between the disability and the reason for the non-payment of rent. If there's a nexus um, and there's a reasonable accommodation that can be accomplished to keep the person housed, then there's a defense. Failure to reasonably accommodate you is discrimination. If the landlord wants to evict these, the simple um, examples are if the landlord wants to evict for something, say, um, having a pet and there's a no pet policy. If that pet is a distress, is an emotional distress dog or if that pet is a seeing eye dog or some other kind of um, non-pet, non <laughs> um, then you can request a reasonable accommodation of the rule that there not be any pets. Um, and especially it, in, yeah, that you can request a reasonable accommodation and then not be evicted for having a violation of the pet portion of the lease if in fact 
the animal is not a pet, but a seeing eye dog or a emotional um, support dog. Another defense is that you, the, the lease, the, the, the no significant lease violation is shown. The, um, if the landlord, the landlord has the duty in a cause case to show that the eviction is based on, um, that the tenant committed the alleged acts, the alleged violation of the lease, and that it was material, that there was a material violation of the lease. If the landlord can't show that you violated the lease or can't show that the violation was material, then that's the sort of, I'm not good for it uh, defense. I didn't do it, I'm not good for it. Um, or it was so minor that it shouldn't count. Um, we've had cases where a landlord brought a case because the tenant violated the <clears throat> rule on having pets when they had a pet for uh, a weekend because somebody was in a hospital. Um, and it was now a year later um, and the judge decided that it was not a, or the judge indicated that she was going to decide uh, that we should, indicated we should go out and make a deal because uh, she indicated she was not gonna decide that that was a major violation of the lease, that that was a relatively minor, that was not a material violation of the lease. Um, Avoidance of forfeiture is important. Based on principles of equity and fairness, the tenant should not lose an apartment if there's some solution short of eviction that's fair to both sides. We've had situations where the tenant owes a very small amount of money. Um, the landlord is evicting um, and the tenant doesn't cure. Uh, technically, the landlord wins, but a judge can decide based on principles of equity and fairness especially if it's a subsidized housing, that loss of that apartment and of the, the eventual subsidized housing um, is not fair and equitable given the small amount of rent that's owed. And a judge, though they cannot usually order anything like a payment plan, a judge can order that he's gonna give you more time to make that payment. And if you make it by a certain date, he will find that that was an avoidance of forfeiture. Equity abhors a forfeiture. We all remember that from law school. All the things equity loves and equity hates, but equity abhors a forfeiture. All right. Um, so you have a right to, the tenant has a right to ask for a discovery um, and a jury trial. In the, in the BC days, the before COVID days, timely discovery, postponed the trial for two weeks. I don't know if we know what it's gonna do in the AD dates, the, the, the AC dates, the after COVID dates. Uh, I'm not sure the court has addressed discovery and the, they've made a recent um, order, but I don't think they addressed discovery at all. So we'll find out what they're gonna do about discovery. You have a right to discovery though, as in all civil cases, but the right to discovery is shortened and in summary process cases, you only get to ask for 30 interrogatories, requests for production of documents, um, and some, yeah, um, mostly, mostly it's production of documents and um, interrogatories. The, um, 
if you don't get your discovery timely, then you can file a motion to compel further responses to discovery, and that postpones the trial generally if the landlord has not done a reasonable job of answering the compelled responses. We ask very detailed, there is a set also at masslegalhelp.org, a set of discovery requests, sort of check off boxes that you can use to, um, and again, this is coming out in fillable PDF, um, that you can use to request discovery. Uh, it has a section on if you are making claims about conditions of disrepair, we ask the questions to the landlord, what did you know and when did you know it? <laughs> um, <coughs> judges are usually good at making them tell you what they knew and when they knew it. There's no other way. It's some, some of the landlords in the court answer things like, well, your client should know when they told them about conditions of disrepair. The question isn't, of course, whether my client knows when they told them about conditions of disrepair, the question is, what is the landlord going to say, A, and B, what does he know from any source other than my client? He could have heard from other sources about conditions of disrepair. He may have heard from them from the tenant before my client was living there. It's possible that he's known about this for some time. The jury trial must be filed by the, the jury request has to be filed by the answer date. It usually postpones the trial date. It would in this circumstance because judges are scheduling after what we understand is there's going to be <clears throat> um, a first date, which would not be with the judge, but would be with a mediator and both sides. Um, and you would have to have your answer in your jury trial three days before that event filed. Um, if there is no result there, there can be a continuance if the parties agree to continue the case, for instance, to get RAFT, which I think, Chris, are you talking about RAFT? Sure. Okay, good. Um, I better hurry up, huh? That'll <laughs> be shorter. Um, the, there is a, um, but we, we usually re recommend people request a jury trial for a couple of reasons. You don't get to request a jury trial later. If you don't ask for it by the answer date, it's gone. Um, as Ken said, the court can be flexible about allowing a late answer, but they are never flexible about allowing a late jury trial claim, never. So if you don't ask for your jury trial, you can never ask for it again. If the case, um, if you're helping somebody fill out an answer um, and the case is placed with an attorney who might wanna have a jury trial, keeping that option open for them is um, something you can do by filing the request for the jury trial date. It can always be dropped later if you decide to have a bench trial, um, but until you, sometimes until you've seen the discovery responses, you don't know what kind of a trial you wanna have. So it's often best to request it so as not to lose it. Okay, some advice to pass on to clients who are in these mediation hearings. We like to use something other than, the, the court often uses a form that's called an agreement for judgment. Your client is agreeing that judgment enter against them in the eviction. So they're essentially agreeing that they lose um, and then they're making a payment plan or something you know, to, to go forward. We like to use something other than an agreement for judgment. An agreement for judgment 
affects your um, credit rating because a judgment has entered against you. And once a judgment enters against you, that affects your credit rating remarkably. So we like to use, uh, for instance, if um, the parties are going to apply for RAFT, the Rental Assistance for Families in Transition, we would rather ask to continue the case until a period when the RAFT money is gonna be available, find out if it's gonna be available, um, and then make an agreement to dismiss the case once the RAFT money is paid, or some other simple agreement that just says the parties agree the case will be um, that she will apply for RAFT. If she gets it, the case will be dismissed. If not, the case can be put back on the trial list, rather than agreeing that judgment enters against your client um, without a trial and without a hearing. We advise folks that they don't have an attorney, try not to negotiate without a housing specialist. It's often best to do that with the housing specialist in the room. Uh, I think under the new system, everybody's gonna be seeing a housing specialist because the first um, meeting is gonna be with the housing specialist. Make sure that everything important ends up in the agreement. We often see agreements where our client says, I agreed to pay back the rent, he agreed to make the repairs. And then they show me the agreement and the agreement says, you agreed to pay back the rent, but it doesn't say anything about repairs. You know, that's very common for our side, unfortunately. Um, make sure that everything gets, ends up in the agreement that's agreed on. Um, if, if repairs are getting made, um, <clears throat> if you're changing the date when monthly rent is due, make sure it ends up in the agreement. Make sure you understand everything that you have to do under the agreement. Make sure the client understands what they have to do under the agreement. That's, you know, it seems simple, but it's very, very important. If a person is unrepresented, you can ask the volunteer attorney for the day. Or if you're in helping somebody in court, you can ask the volunteer attorney for the day to look at the agreement with you um, and before they sign it and see if, um, see what they think and if they have any ideas. Um, the, big, the biggest important thing to tell clients is don't make an agreement they can't fulfill. Uh, many, 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 many hearings in housing court are hearings on motions to issue the execution where the tenant has made an agreement they could not possibly have fulfilled. They agree, um, they owe $3,000, they will pay $2,000 by next Thursday. Well, if they had $2,000, we wouldn't be here. Um, tenants will make sometimes almost any agreement to avoid going to trial where they fear that the other side has a lawyer. They don't have a lawyer, as you know from the, because I think you've all done the training at VLP, 95 or so percent of landlords have attorneys, 95% or so of tenants don't have attorneys. Um, the tenants being in a position where they're, if they fear going to trial against an attorney will sign almost anything, make sure that they don't sign something they can't fulfill. Um, it may take you going back and making a negotiation with the attorney. Uh, remember to bring up the fact that they may at the end of a trial owe you attorney's fees. Um, remind them how high your rate is. Uh, I've taught at Harvard for 30 years now, my rate's pretty high. Um, if they want to go to trial and they lose, um, I'm going to ask for a lot of money as part of my attorney's fees award. Attorney's fees are awarded in cases even when you're not charging the tenant. So 
if you're thinking, well, I'm a volunteer lawyer, so there wouldn't be any fees, the, you're entitled to the fair value of the services provided. So there'd be a judgment for attorney's fees, whether or not you had charged the client. Uh, and that's important to know if a landlord tells you like, oh, well, you won't get fees anyway. You can't get attorney's fees. You're a volunteer lawyer. You can't get attorney's fees. There is in fact um, <clears throat> a judgment for attorney's fees in your favor for the fair value of the services you provided. On the trial date, I'm just saying be there and be prepared. Um, don't get defaulted. On the first hearing date in court, there are not going to be defaults. On the first mediation date, there's not going to be defaults. Um, but if a person doesn't show up for that mediation, then they're automatically scheduled for trial. They have to come prepared for that trial with all their evidence, all their uh, witnesses with them on the trial date. It's not a date to set up a trial, it's the actual trial date. Important items to bring, rent receipts, photographs of poor conditions of housing conditions, inspection reports um, that show poor inspection reports, um, a list of questions to ask the landlord uh, and any witnesses that you wanna have testify. The court is gonna set up something where we can email in our exhibits from what I understand and we will email our exhibits to the court and then bring them up like this on a screen share um, in front of the judge or to show the witness um, in the new world of Zoom. I just wanna put in a plug, a quick plug for, um, shoot, I'll, I'll say this really fast and I'll end with it because the time is flying. Um, the, if a client has a Section 8 voucher or other type of subsidy, losing at trial means usually losing the subsidy. So you have to be ever vigilant to try to come up with something creative so that they don't lose at trial or make an agreement for judgment. To simply agree that they owe the landlord you know, $5,000 in rent may very well lose them their housing authority Section 8 voucher, which is like, um, having gotten it was like winning the lottery. The, if you have a Section 8 voucher, the tenant pays 30% of income and the housing authority pays the rest of the rent. And so to lose that is to put a person who usually cannot make any kind of market rent out on the street with no hopes of finding other housing. So um, if you want to do anything you can to try to be creative in those circumstances. Uh, one such creative thing we've that's mentioned here is that you make um, the settle make a different agreement that says we're agreeing this is a no fault case. We're not agreeing that we're not agreeing that she did what they allege she did. We're alleging um, when where she's agreeing to move on a no fault basis, or that you dismiss the case and literally take out a no fault case and she wins, you know, she agrees to move out on certain terms. We have done agreements to later agree on a no-fault case. Um, the, we can't help whether the PHA will terminate or not. We can't stop that. But what we can do is the best we can to try to protect. All right, I'll stop.
because we're we're over time and let Chris have some time. Sure, thank you. So I'm I'm Chris Sicardi. I'm a partner with Ken. Um, and as he mentioned, um, I represent landlords and tenants. Um, and I I I know the hour is late, and I just want to spend um, a a little bit of time giving you a brief overview of some of the unique issues that you might see based on um, sort of the, the COVID world that we're living in right now. Um, and there's been, as you probably know, a whole patchwork of federal, state, and local um, laws, regulations, ordinances, um, orders that, that have put in place various sorts of moratorium on eviction cases. I'm not gonna go into all of the history because we don't have a lot of time, but I wanna flag a few things that are of particular importance. As you may know, there, there has been a statewide moratorium that is almost certain to um, expire this coming Saturday. It, there, it had been previously extended by Governor Baker from its original expiration date in August. Um, and it, and, and it's not likely to be extended beyond this Saturday. That moratorium prevented all but essential evictions. And, and without getting into too much detail, essentially, unless an eviction was really an emergency sort of situation dealing with health and safety, serious sorts of issues, those, those evictions were put on hold. Um, and so not only were the evictions put on hold, you couldn't file a new one, you couldn't even terminate a tenancy unless it was one of those emergency situations. So that's something that you could keep an eye out for. I just had a tenant come to me the other day with a notice to quit that was for non-payment of rent that was served a couple of weeks ago. And, and I'm going to argue it's clearly defective. Not only um, would that landlord lose the case if they go to court and rely on that defective notice, but the service of that notice during the moratorium is a 93A violation. That's an unfair and deceptive practice. Um, so that's something you wanna keep in mind is not only whether or not the case um, was brought at the proper time, but was there a notice that was sent? You know, did, did the landlord try to terminate the, the tenancy when they didn't really have the authority to do so? Um, Another important thing to keep in mind um, throughout all of this is that there's been a lot of tolling of dates, um, of court orders, of statutes of limitations, and this was due to some SJC orders, a series of them that essentially told dates from between the middle of March until July 1st. So if someone is coming to you with a, a deadline or a statute of limitations question, it may not be the case that that has passed. You do need to sort of add on to July 1st, the time that was, that was previously existing. So it, it, it's an extension on a lot of, of different types of dates. Um, so on the one hand, we have the statewide moratorium that's ending. We also have a recent federal action from the CDC um, that is not a moratorium, but I think the best way to look at it is it's sort of a defense that a tenant can raise. So where the statewide moratorium actually barred any sort of non-payment case, for example, the CDC order that was recently um, enacted and which goes through the end of this year doesn't prevent the landlord from terminating a tenancy, bringing a case, having a trial, winning the trial, um, even having judgment enter but it prevents um, the landlord from proceeding with, a, with, with moving a tenant out 
but only if the tenant takes advantages of the protections of that order. So basically it puts a burden on the landlord to repeatedly certify at different points in the case that they haven't received a certification from the tenant saying that they're taking advantage of the CDC protection. And that needs to be filed by the landlord when the case is filed with the court before judgment will enter and before execution can issue. So the court is going to be very careful um, to make sure that if a tenant has taken advantage of that, that protection, a landlord cannot proceed through to actually remove them. So that's certainly something to keep in mind. You'll want to look for those um, affidavits from the landlord at those various points. Um, and it looks to me like the court is going to be making a lot of efforts to make sure tenants are aware of that protection. Um, and that's certainly something that you could do um, for any tenants you speak to. Now, in addition to that CDC rule, which is in place, there are local ordinances that notwithstanding the expiration of the statewide moratorium can still be in effect. Um, as of right now, Cambridge, Danvers, Gloucester, PVD, Salem, and Somerville all have local ordinances that prevent um, levying on executions. So even if um, you know, the statewide moratorium ends and, and regardless of the CDC regulation, those, um, those local ordinances are in place. So you wanna be careful about that. Briefly, the, the housing court has issued a series of standing orders and just issued a, uh, its most recent one in which it's put in place sort of how they're going to handle these cases. And they set up a two-tier system where the landlords will no longer notify a tenant in the summons of, a, of an initial trial date. Instead, the court will um, notify them of a first court event, which will be a mediation with a mediator. Um, and if that's unsuccessful, and if the parties don't agree to additional time, then a clerk would join that call, that Zoom hearing and schedule a date, which would be no sooner than two weeks after that. So it really does slow down the process and it gives everyone um, a chance to try mediation ahead of time. And there's going to be a big push, um, as Maureen mentioned, for, for helping tenants to get assistance with arrearages and non-payment cases. And so the RAFT program was recent, it's been bolstered significantly by the feds and now by Governor Baker and the amount of money that tenants who are behind um, can receive from the state has increased rather significantly, um, in some cases up to $10,000 from a prior cap of 4,000. So there's a lot of money out there um, and tenants should be available, I, I should be aware that that's available. Um, just a couple of, of final thoughts on this. Um, you know, the, the practical implication of all of this is that there are going to be a lot of delays. Um, summary process is supposed to be quick. Um, it was never that quick um, if, it, if a tenant requested a jury trial, but it's gonna be a lot more tricky now. The court is going to be doing almost exclusively Zoom hearings. They're going to be batching them into, in Boston at least, into hearings sort of at nine, 11, and, and two o'clock on certain days um, and they're limited into what, you know, what cases can be heard. And so where before you had in Boston 200 cases on every Thursday or so, now it's going to be much tougher. So not only is there significant backlog, but they don't have the ability to be as efficient as they used to be. And the final thing I wanna mention from a 
lawyer for the day perspective and, and an advocacy perspective is the issues that come up with remote hearings. Um, a lot of people that you'll talk to who come to the table probably don't, you know, many may not have a phone or access to Zoom or a computer. Um, and there are a lot of equity issues and sort of access to justice issues that I think are implicated here. And so um, you should be careful, um, you know, to, to, to raise those with the court. The judges have been pretty sensitive to that in my experience. Um, I've done a lot of Zoom hearings and the judges will, um, you know, try to, try to assist when possible to make sure that things are fair. You still have a right um, to an interpreter and, and, and the ability to request one. So you should not, um, you know, accept the situation where, for instance, a landlord has Zoom and, and a tenant doesn't really have an ability to participate um, or at least participate on an even playing field. So those are things to keep in mind. And, and I'll stop there given sort of the late time so that we have a little bit of time for questions. I see in the chat box that there are some questions listed. So we go through those or should we? Probably could start with those. There are a number listed in the chat in the Q&A. I can touch on the first, or I can touch on some if you'd like. Sure, why don't you start, we can go through. Um, the first one, how can the tenant cure by tending all the money due when the lease requires attorney's fees? So it's really, you're gonna be really careful with the wording there. Uh, you, in this question, you say all the money due, but the statute actually says that you can cure by paying all the rent that's due, not all money that's due. Uh, so a lot of landlords will try and tack on more, but it's all the rent that's due only. Uh, can I notice to quit be left with a household number younger than 18? No. Uh, at least my constable, I don't think, would do it. I'm not sure if you guys have any thoughts on that. I mean, I, I, right. I, I would tend to agree in any official sense. I think... The standard is whether the person you're trying to get the notice to receives it. And I suppose right. I could see a situation where you've got a mom and pop landlord and sort of a friendly relationship and they drop it off and they give it to the, the person. And if, and if the, the attendant recipient actually receives it, that might be okay. But I wouldn't do that in any official capacity and rely on it in court. Yeah. Um, what breach of a, uh, what type of notice to quit should bring if there's non-payment and fault? Uh, I, I, I list all the reasons. If I have an, if I have an eviction that has fault and non-payment, I list everything in the notice to quit. Um, obviously going with the longer, whatever the longer term is, if, if the lease allows for a seven day notice to quit, but I'm doing non-payment as well. I do 14 days. If the lease doesn't, I do a 30 day notice alleging everything. And another thing to keep in mind there is you can always do an account annexed to a cause case. So you can bring a case for a lease violation and still seek um, rent that might be owed. Um, so you want to be clear about the basis and their strategic reasons for whether you pick one or the other. In a cause case, a tenant is limited in how they can counterclaim. In a non-payment or no cause case, they're not. So that's worth some serious consideration. Uh, the next question I'm curious about as well, I'm wondering if Maureen has any thoughts on a breach of quiet enjoyment for a building shutting down their common area due to COVID. I can't imagine that would be a breach of quiet enjoyment. Um, but I'm curious, uh, Maureen, if you have any thoughts on that. I wouldn't think so if it was shut down to everybody because of COVID. Yeah. Not question, if it's shut down to some people because of COVID and not other people because of COVID. Right, that, that would be a problem. Yeah. That would be a problem, right. 
there is the related question, I think, though, if you've bargained for use of all those facilities and you don't have them, are you entitled to a reduction in rent? I mean, I think it's a thorny question. I think breach of pride enjoyment tends to get it at fault of the landlord, whether their action was reasonable. And I think that's certainly a reasonable action to shut those common areas due to a pandemic. Is the tenant entitled to some compensation for, for not being able to use something for which they're paying is a separate question, um, not necessarily a breach of pride enjoyment question. Right. Yeah, and I wonder if that falls under the government standard, you know, where utilities are shut off because the government shut them off or something. Uh, I mean, I'm, there's certainly arguments around for that, uh, but it's not black and white. How much of the elements, if any, discussed can be waived or limited by agreement in the lease on none? Right? When you, I'm not sure what, what the question yeah, is, what elements they're referring to, but elements of any claim can't be waived. Right. So like I mean, they're often landlords who try to be clever with their leases. And, um, you know, there, there are any number of statutes that explicitly say, you know, security deposit statute being one, um, a lot of the regulations under 93A, that you can't, um, notwithstanding any language in a lease, um, you can't waive the requirements in the security deposit statute and that by definition, you know, as a matter of public policy, any such language is void. And I would argue the inclusion of that language is probably a 93 okay. violation in and of itself. I'd say the same, yeah. Yeah. Uh, are pet fees permitted in addition to the security deposit? <laughs> uh, I say no. I say no, pet fees are not permitted. And then yeah, if you look at the beginning of, of 186.15b, um, the security deposit statute, it limits the fees that can be collected at um, or before the inception of the tenancy to only first month's rent, last month's rent, a security deposit of no more than one month's rent, and the actual cost of changing a locker key. No other fee, no matter how you characterize it, is allowed under any circumstances to be collected by the landlord. If you collect the security deposit that's less than a month's rent, you know, you could characterize that as some of it is for a pet and some not, perhaps, but you want to be careful. If you're collecting a full security deposit and then a pet fee on top of it, I mean, there's actually a case um, in federal court, a class action, um, equity residential got caught up on that. So you want to be very careful about pet fees. The better practice is just increase the rent. You know, $100 a month more rent is what you'll be charging for a particular unit, but you then need to be careful you know, you can't do that for a pet that's a, an emotional support animal or, you know, a pet that's there for reasonable accommodation. So it's a thorny issue. I think that's what they're asking here. And that's the common follow-up. People uh, kind of confuse fee and rent. And I get the question a lot about whether they could charge more rent. I think that's the next question, pet rent as an illegal security deposit. But it's not, I mean, if you're, char if, if you're renting an apartment for 2000 a month rent and someone says, I got two bull mastiffs that I want to live, you say, fine. I'll rent to you, but the rent's twenty-two hundred. Uh, again, certainly not illegal, but be very careful on the, as Chris just said, on the accommodation piece. Um, the next one is security deposit <laughs> in real life. I mean, I'll say a couple of quick things about that. There's, yeah. there's two ways to look at it. The security deposit statute is strict liability, and there's actually a particular case that says. A landlord's frame of mind or or their good faith is absolutely immaterial to the to the calculation. So a judge has no discretion to say, oh, the landlord was trying. Um, I don't think they should be on the hook. There's black letter law, and the, if the landlord violated, they're in trouble. Having said that, 
the security deposit law, the, the, the cases that interpret the statute and, and, and some of the statute itself has a lot of safe harbor for a landlord. Just putting, uh, for instance, a, a deposit into an improper account, that's a, a technical 93A violation and it's a technical violation of the security deposit statute, but trouble damages do not attach unless when the, the, the tenant is entitled to the immediate return of the deposit when that happens. And if the landlord doesn't return it upon demand, then treble damages attach. But right. just by doing that thing, you know, th those sort of improper account or not giving a receipt, that in and of itself doesn't result in treble damages. Now, the thing that does, black letter law, 30 days at the end of the tenancy. If that landlord returns the deposit on day 31, if they're the nicest grandma landlord in the world, they're on the hook for treble damages as a matter of law. Some judges don't like that and, and they won't follow the law, but it's absolutely clear that that's what the law says. And I think if you took that up on appeal, you'd win. Right, at the end of the tenancy, you have 30 days to either give the person back the security deposit or give them a statement under oath that says why you're not giving them back the security deposit <clears throat> that includes receipts or whatever you're, you're saying your evidence is that they're not entitled to the security deposit back. You have to do one or the other within 30 days. Um, and if 31 days go by, I think you're right. I think you get three times the security deposit plus attorney's fees and costs. Right. And in, in the next question, you know, in terms of who attorney's fees are paid to, that's a great question. Um, I, you know, I started out at the attorney for the day table taking cases on a pro bono basis. And to the extent that I ever won a case with a fee shifting claim like security deposit, breach of pride enjoyment, retaliation, 93A, those sorts of things. Um, while I wouldn't take a contingency cut of a tenant's um, damage award, if I prevail on one of those fee shifting claims, I can file a fee petition with the judge and those fees could be awarded to the individual volunteer attorney. Um, or if it's in the case of Harvard or VLP, they can be awarded to the organization. That happens routinely. And it's important that it happens because otherwise, you know, the, there would be no teeth in, in the statute. I mean, as Maureen pointed out, that's an enormous point of leverage for a tenant. Um, you know, not only might a landlord be facing damages, but they might have to pay for all of the tenant's attorney's fees, or at least th that portion that's reasonable. So those can get awarded and you should certainly make those requests. Yes, and if you feel the least bit guilty about it, VLP would be glad to take <laughs> would be glad to take a donation on the amount of the attorney's fees that you've won. So, um, so would the Harvard Law School Legal Services Center or uh, yeah. Great Boston Legal Services or whoever you're um, whoever you're pleased to give the money to would be pleased to receive it. So, consider a donation if you're, um, but it would be awarded to the individual attorney is who it would be awarded to. In, in terms of filing under COVID, the court is encouraging people to use e-filing. Attorneys are required to do it. Pro se parties are not required, um, but they certainly can if they're, if they're a party. Um, you know, the, the, the court can't require them to, but I think to the extent you, you can, they can do it, um, that's nice, certainly. So the uh, court, I think, is hoping that pro se tenants will set up an account and use um, e-filing, but they are also, they have also been accepting papers through email to the 
through the court and um, they've been accepting papers that way. So uh, they've been a little bit, we'll have to see when the rush comes, when the crush comes of tsunami, if they start getting more, the tsunami starts coming, if they start getting more um, picky about how you file your um, claims. But uh, a, a pro se can set up an account and use the e-filing system. Oh, I, sh I, say, I should say, a pro se can do it, whether they're able to do it is, a, is a, another whole different story, but maybe you can help walk them through it if you're helping them fill out an answer. Then I guess next there's a question on preemption, if a local ordinance might, you know, how can it prevent um, you know, the statutory law of levying on an execution. I don't know what local ordinance we're talking about. I think it's the local ordinance I mentioned where they said notwithstanding, um, you know, the expiration of the statewide moratorium, we're not allowing levying on executions in, say, Somerville or Cambridge, uh -huh. for instance. Um, I, don't know, I don't know how those are going to play out. I'm as curious as the next person. Yeah, I think it's a good question. It hasn't been tested yet because those have sort of not been necessary, <laughs> generally speaking, while the statewide moratorium was in effect, um, although they are a little broader than a state moratorium. Um, now, I don't know what the, what the courts would think about that. It's an interesting... Yeah, I was hoping for some clarification from the courts or from the cities and towns while the, when the moratorium left. I'm still hoping for that because they are... I mean, slightly more encompassing. They're grossly more encompassing. I mean, that any residential or commercial tenant cannot be evicted for any reason whatsoever, no exceptions, mm -hmm. um, until further notice. Um, so I, I'm, I'm hoping for some clarification on those very soon, <laughs> to say the least. You know, the next question is interesting about sort of tenants, tenancy status and if roommates are switching in and out. Um, how do you tell the status? I, you know, we have this discussion a lot, and I think, I think it's extremely rare that an occupant of a property is anything less than a tenant in sufferance, even if a landlord would like to argue that they're not. And, and people throw around the term trespasser, but you're not a trespasser if you were admitted into the property by someone who had a right to be there, which includes just about everyone. Now, you may be a tenant in sufferance in the sense that you're there against the wishes of the landlord, and the landlord might prevail in a summary process case, but it's relatively rare the instance where a landlord can say that you're a licensee and you're not entitled to the protections of a tenant. Um, right, and so a, uh, tenancy, a tenant at sufferance is entitled to summary process. They're entitled to, be, to notice of that eviction is not, um, <clears throat> yeah, entitled to summary process, so they have to be evicted in the, and what we typically do from a landlord perspective is be conservative. If there's an argument to be made that it's a stronger type of tenancy entitled to more notice, for instance, give the greater notice because you're only saving days. And if you give the wrong sort of notice and a judge six months from now at the trial tosses out your case, you know, you've lost all of that time. If you just take the time to do the most generous notice, you've covered your bases at the beginning. So it's something you want to be careful on. I think the 
the next question was on retaliation, I think, at the end of a lease. I think you got to look at the circumstances more carefully. I mean, I, in order to avoid that, I word my leases very carefully that the lease expires. But I think certainly if you have a lease that's been renewed every year without question, or if you have a building with its five leases and every other lease is renewed, but the one who complained about mice didn't get renewed, that could certainly form the basis for retaliation. Right. Uh, so you got to look globally at all, you got to look at all the facts to see what it is there. But it's, it, um, yes, it's it's really any negative action taken by the landlord. It's not just eviction. If the landlord right. says you can't park in the parking lot anymore after you complained, or you can't use a washing machine, or you know, like or even raise the rent, raise the rent, right? Anything that the landlord does, any adverse action the landlord takes after you have protected yourself by um, you know doing a protected activity can be retaliatory. Yeah, the next question is about, you know, would a tenant be entitled to a, a, a decrease in rent on account of a, you know, a landlord not saying that there were aggressive breeds of dogs in the building when it, you know, the building said only cats were allowed. That's a complicated scenario. I think it depends on a lot of things. Certainly, if the landlord misrepresented that fact in any sort of active fashion, I think a tenant might have an argument. Um, you know, if, if a, a tenant is is entitled to make a, a request for a reasonable accommodation to allow a dog even in a building where dogs are not allowed. And so to the extent that dogs exist because they're emotional support or service animals, um, that's not only is it allowed, it's required by the law that the landlord allow those animals. Um, you know, if a tenant is allergic to dogs and moved into this building after an explicit conversation with the landlord that they can't be in a building with dogs and the landlord assured there were none, and then some are allowed, might the tenant have an argument, you know, to get out of the lease, perhaps. Um, but I don't think, you, so I think it's really sort of fact dependent on those sets of circumstances. This is an interesting one too. There's a lot of this questions going on around this. Are there any special protections for tenants in light of COVID to prevent landlords showing apartments if the lease allows a landlord to show an apartment to prospective tenants, but the tenant is not comfortable with that given the health risks. Um, it's tough. There isn't an answer in the law right now, um, unfortunately. Um, I would say if the landlord is being um, unreasonable about that, then you probably want to seek a restraining order, um, restraining the landlord from being unreasonable and showing the apartment. It may be that a judge wouldn't say that he can never show the apartment, but it may say that he has to show it, um, you know, less frequently than he wants to or in... There are local, there are local ordinances that ordinances, are addressing it. Yes. Um, yes. And every town's different, so you got to wing it. You know, Somerville has an or Somerville's ordinance states, talks specifically about showings, open houses. I think a good resource for that is to call uh, um, some real estate offices that you know, because they have, they, they're reviewing those guidelines very carefully in terms of showing properties for sale, uh, open houses, and showing tenants. There are, I just did a lecture to a bunch of real estate brokers, um, and they have a lot of guidelines now, and they have a lot of, one agent actually sent me a whole bunch of the town guidelines on um, what they're, how enforceable it is, who knows, but there are lots of towns that are, that are putting forth their own um, instructions saying, you know, no showings unless an emergency, things like that. 
mm -hmm. um, when properties are occupied. And again, those type of things, you got to look at reasonableness standard. Both parties could, it drives me crazy when I see landlords and tenants just digging their feet in, being insane on those things. You know, there's, there's, there's always room to be reasonable and work something out, you know, do fewer, few, fewer showings, do it at times that they all could agree to, put in me safety measures in place, <laughs> usually find, find some common ground in those things. Great, well, I think given the, the time, um, maybe we'll, we'll, we'll wrap it up at that. Yeah. Thank you, everyone. All, all you virtual people that we haven't seen. Um. <laughs> yeah, hopefully people are actually here. I guess with the written questions, we know there were some. <laughs> Thank you very much um, to all of you for attending um, and also to our great panelists. This was an awesome program and we really appreciate you all attending today. Thank you. Thank you. Enjoy Thank you. Goodbye. Thank you, Maureen.